Friends, the next two weeks, we're going to be going into a series called Why. We're going to be looking into some questions that folks have reached out and asked me, some stuff I've been seeing online. I view it as part of my job to serve you up some good theology during this quarantine season. I got to tell you, I think it's an important time to be looking inward and asking these really important questions. Like, why does God allow suffering? Where is God when we suffer? So I'm, I'm really interested in, in digging into these and discovering some hope together. I also got to tell you, I can't preach about Corona every week for the rest of my life. So we're going to hit it hard for two weeks. Put on your big boy, big girl pants. and we're, Let's do this together. Let's ask some hard questions. And then we'll see how we're doing on the other side. Sound good? One of my all-time favorite memories is when my son got his first bike. He was about three or four, and he'd been wanting one for a little while, and he also really liked Spider-Man, still does. And so he said, all right, let's go look for a bike. So we went to a thrift store, and wouldn't you know, lo and behold, there it was, a Spider-Man children's bike. I'm going to be totally honest. In that moment, my son was so happy, so overjoyed. The bike was perfect. It was Spider-Man, mint condition. I felt like it was divine providence. I hope that doesn't sound corny to say. I really did feel like God had placed that bike in that store for us. I mean, it was also 50% off. So I got an amazing Spider-Man bike for like $23. It was awesome. Again, one of my favorite, favorite days ever. Now, here's the deal. Providence means what God has provided. On a broader level, providence means the way God interacts with the world. So here's the tricky part. If God can provide my family with a Spider-Man bike at 50% off, how about a vaccine for this disease? I mean, it seems pretty trivial in comparison, doesn't it? This question of providence is one I've spent a lot of my life obsessed with. That's part of why I wanted to go to seminary is to investigate these type of questions, to have these types of conversations. Especially when we're confronted with tragedy or suffering or pain, no matter where you're at on the spiritual spectrum, I think a common question in reaction to these terrible experiences, where is God in all of this? Why does God allow something like this to happen? Now, the fancy word for this is called theodicy. Theodicy. This is an attempt to explain or justify or defend God's goodness in light of the reality or presence of evil. Theodicy. You can say it at home. There was a guy named Epicurus a long time ago, and he framed this dilemma up really well. So here's kind of a modern version of it. It has three components. One, God is all-powerful. The theological word for this concept is omnipotence. God is omnipotent. God can do anything. Here's a great verse from Jeremiah. Ah, oh, Lord God, it is you who have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too good for you. So the first component is that God is all-powerful. The second component of our little equation is that God is all-good, right? That God has made and called creation good, and that God's intentions for this creation are for it to, for it to flourish. Here's another great verse from the Psalms. For the Lord is good and his love endures forever. His faithfulness continues through all generations. Okay, so far so good. So one, God is all powerful. Two, God is all good. Great. 
But how do we reconcile those two, those first two parts of the equation with this third component? The reality that evil exists. You don't need me to point out examples of suffering and evil in the world. You can take any two of those three and they make sense. Right? Like if God is all powerful, but not all good, then evil exists because God wills it. Or if God is all good, but not all powerful, then evil exists because God isn't powerful enough to stop it. Any of the two of the three makes sense. But how can all three of those things be true at the same time? This problem has been called the rock of atheism because for a lot of folks, they just can't get over the mental block of all of these things being true simultaneously. It's, it's one of Christianity's most famous refutations or, or, or the things that stand in the way of people believing. The theodicy, the problem of evil, the rock of atheism. People can't believe a God who is all good and powerful would also allow evil to exist. Now, even if you've been a Christian for a long time, you've probably encountered the, this dilemma on a couple levels. When, when we think about why God allows suffering, that, that kind of, in my mind, has, has sort of two levels to it. There's an experiential level and there's an intellectual level. Like all of us have, have suffered hardship. All of us have, have, have had bad things happen to us. All of us have experienced pain. And so when that happens, and that looks a wide variety of ways, we think, well, gosh, how could God let this happen? Like to me personally, in my experience. Right? On the other hand, you've undoubtedly seen situations in the world that strike you as a bit unfair or, or somehow you can't balance out why, good, why bad things happen to good people or the opposite. The Bible puts it this way. It's hard to see the wicked prosper. So when we can't make sense of why some people get better and some don't, why some people who are leading selfless, amazing uh, lives for the good of others suffer greatly, while other folks who are only worried about themselves seem to be getting ahead in life, it's hard for us to wrap our minds around. Why do some prayers go unanswered? It's hard to make sense of this disparity on an intellectual level. So let's define suffering or evil as any force or occurrence that is in opposition to God's goodwill for creation. That's how we'll define evil or suffering. Now, there are two categories that, that help us kind of understand very broadly the different types of suffering or evil. The first is moral evil. And this is pain and suffering done willfully by human agents with intent to harm. Moral evil is why my wife as a teacher and all of our school-aged children have to do active shooter training. It's the worst day of the year for me. I cry annually on that day. I, I, don't, I, don't think it's, I don't think it's a bad idea for them to do it. I regret that it's necessary. It gets me fired up every time. So you don't need me to sit here and explain to you a bunch of examples of moral evil. Because I, I think a lot of us can, can understand this pretty easily. Oh, okay. Moral evil is when someone uses their free will, their agency, or their ability to take actions and have those actions uh, have consequences. 
someone misuses their free will to make harmful, evil choices in opposition to God's good will for their free will. In other words, we understand moral evil because we can make sense of people. Their choices may not make sense to us, but we can, we can intellectually understand the logic of what's happening. Someone made an evil choice and there are consequences to that. So moral evil, we experience a lot, we see it a lot, and we can also, in my view, more easily understand it. More on that in a second. What's more challenging to me is trying to understand natural evil, which we can define as when no human agent can be the cause. So while humans can be involved to some degree in, in natural disasters, uh, examples of natural evil would be like a lightning strike that takes someone's life or, or, or a hurricane or, or a tornado, uh, something that's otherwise destructive, right? We're in the middle of, of experiencing natural evil right now with this pandemic, this disease. And again, I'm not going to get into the, the origins of it. I, that's, that's, that's not my job. I don't know enough about that. But we're experiencing a natural evil in this pandemic that's unlike anything I've had experienced in my lifetime. So the way Christians have tried to solve this theodicy, this problem with reconciling those three components, God is all powerful, God is all good, and evil exists, is to answer the question, why does God allow suffering? And the way Christians have responded to this question goes back to the type of world that God created. So in our scripture today, we're going to look at Genesis. We're going to go all the way back to the beginning. That's what Genesis means, beginning. We read of how God authors creation and calls it good. That God sets up a perfect creation and places Adam and Eve in the center of a garden. And this is essentially the only rule. This is from Genesis chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to till it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, You may freely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall die. Earlier, God had also placed the tree of life in the garden and makes this one prohibition. You can eat from all the other trees except this one, the one we just read about that was described. Just not the the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, for most of my life, I didn't really know what that phrase meant. I thought it sounded kind of scary. No one really explained it to me. This phrase Good and evil occurs in the same sense a couple different times in the Old Testament. Very shortly after the passage we read in Genesis 3, and then later in Genesis chapter 24. Then in the book of Deuteronomy and 1 Kings, two different times. And consistently, this is what it means. To formulate and articulate a judicial decision. So interpreted this way, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil represents People having the power to decide for themselves what is good, what is in their best interests, and what is not. In a word, free will. God created people to look to him for what is best. But God also created people with a choice not to do that. God created people with the ability to choose. This was the temptation, in fact, to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and become like God. The Bible says when Adam and Eve ate of it, their eyes were opened with history altering consequences. 
And this is what theologians call the fall. We see a good description about the fall, the consequences of Adam and Eve's free will and the choice they made in Genesis chapter 3. Because you listened to your wife and ate from the fruit, the tree which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. So the fall had biological and ecological consequences. God set up a world where people were truly free to make their own choice because true love requires a true choice. One of the blessings of quarantine is my son, we've been able to have him experience for the first time what it's like to binge watch a TV show. Oh yeah, that's where we're at. So this week, in the past week, we've knocked out like eight episodes of Lego Masters. Now, if you haven't seen it, you should. Lego Masters is a reality show competition where these different teams of people come and build amazing Legos. Oh, excuse me, Lego. It's only singular, you know. One of the couples on there, on this Lego Masters show, is, let's say, um, unbalanced. And I said to Sarah the other night, Sarah, I think I understand now how people feel when they look at me and you and go, what's going on there? The amazing thing about being married to Sarah is that nobody forced her to. It was her choice and she continues to choose to stay. Love isn't love if you don't have a choice, right? And it's the same with God. God ordered creation in such a way that we have the choice to not love God. We can listen to God's will and, and perfect instruction for our lives, or we can choose our own way. God created the world good, but part of that goodness was the possibilities and the consequences of people choosing something other than God's best. God thought the good of free will was worth the potential for us to choose evil instead. Now for me, I can accept moral evil much easier than natural evil. It makes sense to me that some folks would choose evil and inflict pain and suffering. I could even identify with that, having made a long list of bad choices throughout my life. But, but pandemics? Tornadoes in Texas? simultaneously during a pandemic? I don't get it, man. I don't get it. Now, historically, folks have responded to this tension in different ways. It comes down to whether as a person or faith, you want to emphasize God's sovereignty or God's inscrutability or mystery. If you emphasize God's sovereignty, then you're more likely to believe that cause that God causes these events, that these events of natural evil are part of God's will. Since, as we read in Lamentations, is it not from the mouth of the Most High that both calamities and good things come? Now, other folks, like myself, would have a hard time worshiping a God who would intentionally inflict COVID-19 upon their children. 
We would lock a human parent up if they did that. So again, folks feel differently about this. And again, I could be wrong. But the other side of the coin here is, is the emphasis upon God's mystery and embracing the concept that while God doesn't cause these things, God allows natural evil for certain reasons that we cannot as finite humans understand on this side of eternity. I love this verse from Isaiah 40. The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of all the earth. He never grows weak or weary. No one can measure the depths of his understanding. So, so given all the tension I've laid out, how do we answer the question, why does God allow suffering? I'm just going to tell you up front, if I had the answer to this, I would write a book and I'd be a really big deal. <laughs> right? I, I don't think there's a simple answer. People have been wrestling with this concept since, since forever. This is one of the main ideas of the book of Job, the relationship between God and sovereignty and suffering. One of the interesting points about Job is that some biblical scholars believe that it was the first biblical book written down. Here's an excellent uh, example from chapter 30. This is what Job says. I cry out to you, God, but you do not answer. I stand up, but you merely look at me. I think it's helpful to remember that the Bible points to our dilemma and our frustration and our lament. That's not a word we use very often, but it's a very biblical concept, lamenting. Biblical scholar and author N.T. Wright said this in an article I read recently. Lament is what happens when people ask why and don't get an answer. Mm. Some of us may need to rediscover the ancient practice of lament. And I just want you to know it's biblical. So go to God with your frustrations, your doubts, and your fears. Continuing to ask God why is an act of faith, not the opposite because you're still sticking around. Partnered with lament is another practice that I don't particularly do very well, and that's waiting. There's a key phrase that we read, especially in the Old Testament and especially in the Psalms. How long, O Lord? It's a waiting game sometimes. This is from Psalm 13. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? Look on me and answer, Lord my God. Now, one of the things I love about the Psalms of Lament is they start off brutally honest, pretty intense, but that's not where they end. Let's read the rest of that Psalm, verses five and six from Psalm 13. But I trust in your unfailing love, my heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing the Lord's praise for he has been good to me. So that's where I try to land. In the midst of, of asking God my whys and how longs, I try to consider a different question. What are we learning from all of this? I think that we're learning that we're more connected than we thought and we need each other more than we've realized. COVID-19 has also taught me that there's a lot that I can't comprehend. I can't fathom the extent or the duration of this pandemic. I also can't quite explain the mystery of how God is or isn't involved. 
It gives me comfort to remember that I'm a child of God. And in comparison to God, I'm like an infant. Becoming a parent has given me a greater love for God because now I've experienced that I want the best for my child and it pains me to see them suffer. But as a parent, I also know that I have a greater perspective than my young children. I told you earlier about my son getting his first bike. Well, that was a few years ago and we've had a little progress since then. And one of the bright spots of quarantine uh, was a big step that my family experienced last week. My son now on a bigger bike also is rolling without the training wheels. They see me rolling. I didn't have that written down. Uh, my wife is rolling her eyes behind the camera. <laughs> Just, yeah, there it is. <clears throat> if you've been missing that, there you go. <laughs> now, my son picked it up super quick. I was so proud of him. So It was just great. So just, again, another great memory. But when he decided to ride his bike with no training wheels, I sat him down, and we had a little pep talk. I was like, listen, dude, in this process, you will fall. I tried to sound like Liam Neeson. You will fall down. You will get hurt. You will bleed. And you will cry. Right? I, I tried to tell him all this. Now, you know... I've got to get my licks in here because my son is currently still young enough to where he doesn't mind being the example in my sermon. So I'm really trying to get a lot, of, a lot of mileage here. One thing I will say about my son, Aaron, is that his pain tolerance is not super high. Not real high. Right? Every minute scrape or bruise is just a really big deal. Tears, wailing, it, it's a whole thing. Screaming. From his perspective, he is in a huge amount of pain. And I try and remember that. When he runs into my arms and wants me to kiss his boo-boo, it gives him reassurance to know that I care and that I want him close to me. At the same time, though, my perspective as his parent is greater than his, and I know that he's going to make it. I choose to believe, friends, and trust that God is so powerful and so good that whatever is beyond this life will make all of this pain that we experience seem like a skin knee. I love these words from 1 Corinthians chapter 2. No eye has seen, no ear has heard, and no mind has imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. So friends, keep asking why. Keep asking how long. And in the meantime, let's trust in the power and the goodness of God with his help, friends. We'll get through this together. And everybody said, amen. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for this chance to worship together online, to be both challenged and encouraged by the reading of your word. God, help us to bring to you our honest questions, our doubts, our frustrations, our lament, our cries of why and how long. And in this moment, God, meet us with the reassurance that you are powerful and you are good. Help us keep our eyes not on things temporal, but on what is eternal. And keep alive in us the hope that we celebrated last week on Easter and that we cannot possibly fathom just how powerful and how good you are and what awaits those who love you. 
In the meantime, God, keep us safe. We lift all these things up in your precious son's name. And everybody said, amen.